You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, Introduction to the Song of Moses. God gave Israel so many ways to know him. There was the witness of creation itself. They had the tabernacle and the priesthood and all the sacrifices and festivals. They had the Levites who would be amongst the tribes to teach them the law of God. The three required yearly feasts would bring them all together in a central location. They had dietary distinctions and civil laws that set them apart from other nations. They had the law read to them regularly. They would be given judges and later kings to deliver them from their enemies and prophets to call them back to God when they strayed. They were in families whose responsibility it was to teach the next generation. They would see the blessings that resulted from obedience as well as the curses that fell on the disobedient. But God also gave them this song, a kind of national anthem, to remind them of the main theme of his faithfulness and their unfaithfulness. Sharon James says, The two strands are warp and woof. Remove the one and the other makes no sense. The staggering nature of the grace of God only sparkles in full glory when displayed against the background of his graceless people. If his people sing only of his goodness, they will forget the evil of their own hearts, their tendency to backslide, and they will fall away even more quickly. They must sing of God's mercy, but they must also sing of their own sin. So it would remain in their memories even in exile, when they no longer had any access to any other means of grace. So God told Moses to write this song and teach it to the Israelites. It would testify against them in the future, future generations to show them that God knew in advance that they would rebel against his law and forsake him. The main theme is their apostasy which brings God's righteous judgment but it is also a testament to his mercy. Even though they would be unfaithful he would remain faithful because he cannot break his word. He loved Israel and because of that he would remind them of all he had done for them and reprimand them for their sin. So the song begins, Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O you earth, the words of my mouth. So just as God said he would call heaven and earth, which is God and man, to testify against them, now Moses is summoning heaven and earth to listen to the covenant requirements and the prophecy that they will break. All of creation is the audience for this song from God to Israel. God said it was both a witness for him and against them. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. If they would receive it, then like dew, rain, and showers on the earth, It would bring them great benefit and refreshment. Verses 3 to 6, A steadfast God and a fickle nation. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. 
a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. He is described as great, perfect, just, faithful, and upright. He does no wrong, and he is as stable, unchanging, and permanent as a rock. He is a foundation on which we can build our lives. His works are perfect. The work of redemption is complete. Therefore, he is worthy of praise. But they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? So in contrast to the lofty characteristics of God, they are described as corrupt, shameful, warped, crooked, foolish, and unwise. They are rejected as his children, even though he is their father and creator who made and formed them into a nation. And in light of his care of them, this shameful rebellion was how they repaid his kindness. Verses 7 to 9, God's election of Israel. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father, and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain it to you. This was a call to reflect on their past generations. If they couldn't remember, they should ask their father or other elders who would surely tell them. It was the responsibility of parents to pass on not just the events of the past, but the lessons learned from them. In the book of Job, he challenges his friends, but ask the animals, and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Even creatures and the creation reflect God's praise. Then Job says, Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? The elders should be sources of wisdom for their next generation. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples, according to the number of the sons of Israel. And the title, the Most High, emphasized God's sovereignty and authority over all nations in distributing them across the earth, first when he divided them at Babel, and then when he gave Israel the land by inheritance. And this had not happened yet, but it was written in past tense, because God will ensure it happens. And this song will be sung in the future, after they've received their inheritance, reminding them of how God provided a country for them. And it says it's according to the number of the sons of Israel. So there is a correspondence to the 70 nations listed in Genesis 10, and the 70 people who went down to Egypt. When he set their boundaries, it anticipated the future population that would fill them. There would be enough room for them. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. But not only did they inherit, but they are God's inheritance, also called his portion or his possession. Think of that. He takes us as his own. Verses 10 to 12, God's faithful care in the wilderness. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, 
like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. They are reminded of the wilderness wanderings which were now ended. Earlier he had said, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these forty years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. The whole nation is personified as an individual wandering in a desert without food or water who is rescued by God and cared for by him. God shielded Israel, cared for him and guarded him. His protection of Israel is described as guarding him as the apple of his eye, especially in a howling wind. This is describing how we protect our eyes and therefore our vision because it is so vital. Picture a sandstorm where eyes would be shut tight and shielded for protection. Another image of protection and care is of an eagle protecting its young in the nest and teaching them to fly on their own. God would not let them fall. Exodus 19.4 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Through Isaiah, God says, Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. Just as God didn't need any help in rescuing or leading Israel, so he expected they would acknowledge only him. Later he'll say, But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Saviour except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. Verses 13 and 14 Their Early Days in the Land he made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. So this describes the honeymoon stage they will experience when they first arrive in Canaan. Honey from the rock describes the honeycombs in the fissures of cliffs, because Canaan had many wild bees. Oil from the flinty crag is likely a reference to olive trees, growing in places usually not associated with fruit-bearing trees. There will be produce in unproductive places, and it is all because of God's blessing. Genesis 49.11 also refers to wine as the blood of grapes. And Nehemiah says, They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. So those will be the good days. Verses 15 to 18, Israel's Apostasy in spite of all that God has done and will do for them, they will reject God and fall away from true worship. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock their savior. God gives Israel the name Jeshurun, which means righteous. This is sarcastic because Israel will not behave righteously. 
The plenty that God will provide for them will make them fat from overindulgence and rebellious against God instead of thankful and obedient. They will abandon and reject Him. Hosea 13.6 says, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. What a picture of our own hearts. We receive blessing from God and take it for granted. Demand more and kick against God. Without God's help, our inclination is only to rebel. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. God would impose the death penalty for idolatry. The basis of this was the jealousy of God, which provokes his wrath. Unlike our jealousy, which is sinful, God's jealousy is right and good because he alone is worthy of worship and therefore demands we love him supremely. Unlike us, he is not insecure, needing our love to feel complete. Rather, we should love him simply because he is the only truly lovable being in all the universe. To allow his glory to be stolen by any lesser creature is offensive because he is unique. God would not share his glory. In Isaiah 42.8 he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. When he led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness, he said there was no foreign god with him. But then they turned around and worshipped these foreign gods. These were gods worshipped by the surrounding nations, which were not known or acknowledged by Israel before. Judges 5.8 says, They chose new gods. These idols were gods that recently appeared, compared with the everlasting God. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. God fathered them and gave birth to them as their heavenly parent, but they deserted and forgot him. Verses 19 to 27, God's wrath as a result. Because of this apostasy, correction was necessary. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. Then Moses quotes God, I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. Therefore the punishment will fit the crime. He says, I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. So this pictures the inclusion of the Gentiles who were uh, any nation outside of Israel. So they considered them not a people. So when Israel worships a no God, they will be judged by a no people. For a fire will be kindled by my wrath, one that burns down to the realm of the dead below. It will devour the earth and its harvests, and set afire the foundations of the mountains. So his anger is pictured as starting a great conflagration that burns down to hell. There is no place to escape his wrath. If you've ever seen the damage a wildfire can do to a town, you can picture this in some small measure. He says, I will heap calamities on them and spend my arrows against them. 
I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street the sword will make them childless, in their homes terror will reign. The young men and young women will perish, the infants and those with gray hair. So every kind of disaster is described, plague, famine, and sword, which would be the main, uh, three main ways that the nation would be judged throughout their history. They would come in waves, much like Job's calamities fell on him in one day, and they would affect all people. I said I would scatter them and erase their name from human history, human memory, but I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, let, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, Our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done this. God could have rightly wiped out the nation completely, but he didn't want the conquering nations to take credit for it. It had to be clear to Israel and their enemies that this was a direct punishment from God and not their military might, as they arrogantly assumed. But when Assyria destroys Israel and thinks it was because of their own might, God will punish them too. Isaiah 10:12-15 says, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations, as people gather abandoned eggs. So I gathered all the countries, not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it, or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up, or a child or a club brandish the one who is not wood. Assyria would be taught that they were just a tool in God's hand, used to punish his people, but then they too would also be punished. Verses 28 to 33, use your head, consider the odds. They are a nation without sense, there is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be, how can they go into the promised land with their eyes wide open, being given clear commands and warnings, and yet fail to obey? They are without sense. They have no discernment. Discernment is the right use of knowledge. God sounds wistful here, longing for them to be wise and understand what their end would be if they disobeyed. He could see it. Why couldn't they? There are other places in Scripture where God speaks in this wistful way. Isaiah 48:18 says, If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. And Deuteronomy 5:29 says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. And Psalm 81, 13 and 14 says, If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Then he says, How could one man chase a thousand, 
or two put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up. So even when they would be greatly outnumbered, as we'll see in many of the recorded battles, like Gideon's three hundred men against a hundred and thirty-five thousand, which is one to four hundred and fifty, God would give them the victory. In Leviticus 26, 7 and 8, God promised, You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. It is not Israel's military prowess that will allow them to defeat superior foes, but God fighting for them against their enemies. For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. So the gods of the nations are just rocks, small g gods, small r rocks, while Israel's God is the rock, capital G God, capital R rock. Even their enemies recognized God's power on their behalf. See the comments by Rahab about the fear of the people of Jericho because of them in Joshua 2. So their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. So their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. By using the metaphor of a vineyard, vines and grapes, God traces the roots of Israel's enemies back to the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the result of venom and poison. Nothing good could come from such a beginning. Serpents and cobras would remind them of the fall when the serpent first introduced sin into the world. The effects were still being felt. Verses 34 to 42. Vindication will come. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it up in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. All that is thought, said, or done is kept as a record before God, and on the great day the books will be opened, and judgment will fall. Paul uses this imagery in Romans 2, when he says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, and God will repay each person according to what they have done. So they need not worry about vengeance. God would see to it, and in a better and more thorough way than they could do it. The last part of that verse, in due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them, was used as the text for the powerful sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Justice delayed does not mean justice denied. It will come. The timing and manner of the repayment of man's wickedness is God's prerogative. The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free, Yes, God will judge his people and their enemies, but he is merciful, so he will not utterly destroy them. In the book of Judges, we'll see this concern of God. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, 
He was with the judge, and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. And it says, Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and served the Lord. And he, God, could bear Israel's misery no longer. So he will say, Now where are their gods, the rock they took refuge in, the gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices, and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them give you shelter. So since they would trust in these gods of stone, rocks, then God challenges the idols who ate and drank the sacrifices to get up and do something to help the people who appealed to them. In the time of the judges, it says, the Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. And in the time of Elisha, Elisha said to the king of Israel, Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. And in the time of Jeremiah, God will say, The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. Compared to the so-called gods of the nations, God shows what he is like. He is the only living God. He has the power of life and death, the power to wound or heal. When he condemns, no one can deliver that person out of his hand. The Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. So then he says, I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. So when God says he lifts his hand to heaven, this is an anthropomorphism, since God doesn't have a body, but he is accommodating to our language and understanding. So God takes an oath, but in his own name, because there is no one above him. This judgment is as sure as the fact that he will live forever. Then he describes himself as the divine warrior, a motif found throughout scripture. It is truly terrifying to imagine God intent on someone's destruction. But this doctrine is mocked today. People do not believe there is a final judgment or heaven or hell. It is the original lie told in the garden. You will not certainly die. Verses, verse 43, Promise of Atonement Benefiting the World Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. So this is a gospel promise. He promises to avenge the blood of his servants, 
and this implies that many will be killed for their faith. He will make atonement, which is to cover sin, for his land and people. So this song ends on a high note of anticipation. Verses 44 to 47. Take these words to heart. Moses came with Joshua, son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Moses reminded them that obedience to God's commands was the key to remaining in the land they were soon to possess. They were to take them to heart, not just memorize the song in their heads, but truly believe it and fear God. These were not just idle words or a little ditty to hum, but it was about life and death and they were to pass on this knowledge to their children. Verses 48 to 52, Moses to die on Mount Nebo. So the section that follows, and the record of Moses' final blessing on Israel, and the record of his death and a eulogy, is believed to have been added by a scribe or perhaps Joshua. But that doesn't detract from Moses' authorship of these five books, which has never seriously been contested. On the same day, the Lord told Moses, Go up into the Abiram range on Mount Nebo in Moab, across from Jericho, and view Canaan, the land I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the wilderness, in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. So Mount Nebo is in Moab, which is on the north and east of the Dead Sea. From there God would allow Moses to see the promised land, but he was not permitted to enter. Moses had entreated God to change his mind, but he told him not to bring it up again. That's in Deuteronomy 3. The matter was settled. This viewing will be recorded in Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 to 4. So just as Aaron had died when and where God said he would, so it would be with Moses. The phrase, gathered to your people, is an idiom for death, although it also clearly says he will die. The phrase suggests a reunion with those who've gone before, and a conscious afterlife, not soul sleep. Moses' work was done. Why should he desire to live a day longer? He was going to his reward. The reason Moses cannot cross over is stated, This is because both of you broke faith with me in the, in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. So this occurred just after Miriam died and was buried. The people again grumbled about the lack of water. And in Numbers 20 it is recorded, Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. 
Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israelites, uh, you will not bring this community into the land I gave them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he was proved holy among them. So the Israelites complained that Moses and Aaron brought them here, not God. The word they used gives the impression that they were compelled to leave Egypt against their will. This wilderness was a terrible place. It didn't have the things they had been promised, like grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates. It didn't even have water. As before, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. This was likely the cloud called the Shekinah glory. They took the problem to God, as the people should have done. Instead of being angry at the grumbling Israelites, God still provided for them. God had brought water out of a rock before, in Exodus 17.6, but then God told him to strike the rock. This time he was to speak to it, even though he was to take his rod with him. And this was Aaron's rod, which was kept in the Ark of the Covenant since it budded. So, instead of speaking to the rock as commanded, Moses spoke to the people. He called them rebels and acted as if he and Aaron were the ones providing for them. Then he angrily struck the rock, not once, but twice. Imagine what a testament to God's power it would have been had Moses only spoken to the rock and water had been provided. In spite of this, God still provided water for them, and he provided abundantly. So there are several aspects to Moses' failure. Disobedience in striking the rock rather than speaking to it. But deeper than that, it was a failure to trust God to provide as he always had. Anger at the people and a feeling that he was the one who would give them the water. That's why God says, you didn't trust me enough to honor me as holy. So both Moses and Aaron were guilty in this, even though Moses did the talking, because he said, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And because he struck the rock when he was only supposed to speak to it. They failed to take God at his word and do as he said, exactly as he said. The judgment would be that neither of them would enter the promised land. Having led the people all this way and all this time, he would fall short of the goal. This place is called Meribah, which means contention, because they contended with God. To contend is to argue, quarrel, disagree, and pick a fight. So this song speaks uh, 
glory to God, terror to its en his enemies, and comfort to his people. It concludes with words of joy, promising atonement. However it may go with the world, in the end it will be well with the souls of his people. Scarlet Threads so what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? This song was given to reprimand Israel when they turned away and remind them of the great God who loved them and redeemed them. Jesus was sent to save Jew and Gentile. God calls us before we even search for him and gives us grace to repent and believe. God gave them so many ways to know him. And this song would testify to them even when they no longer had the other means of grace. Sharon James says truth is set on fire in song. The Israelites sang songs when they experienced military victories or when they wanted to praise God. This song contained history and theology. It was not mere sentimentalism as many of our songs and hymns are today. It's not about us, but about God. Our songs should teach and encourage ourselves and others. We need to take advantage of the means of grace that God provides and acknowledge what a blessing it is to have the scriptures in our language, the freedom to read it, the freedom to worship, teachers and preachers who are faithful to the word, and the privilege to serve others. Psalm 103.2 says, Praise the Lord my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Israelites were taught the song of Moses. At the end, God will bring about all these judgments, and we're told in the book of Revelation that we will sing the song of Moses and also the song of the Lamb. And both songs speak of God's great redemptive acts, and they celebrate Jesus, the only one who could reconcile justice with our rebellion. This song reminded them of God's blessings to them. God is called the rock five times in this chapter. Jesus and his kingdom is described by Daniel as a rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, which will smash all earlier kingdoms, become a huge mountain, and fill the earth. It will be set up after those four kingdoms, and it will endure forever. Paul said that the rock that led them was Christ. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus said his teaching was like a rock that wise people build their lives on. Israel was described as a warped and crooked generation. Jesus called people, you believing, unbelieving, and perverse generation. And Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. God is the father of the nation. While in the New Testament, God is described as the father of individual believers. God set the boundaries of the nations. Paul says, from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God called his people his inheritance, portion, and possession. 
This idea is carried over into the New Covenant. There is a spiritual continuity between believers throughout time. God kept Israel safe as the apple of his eye. David prays, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Solomon says, Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. And Zechariah 2.8 says, For this is what the Lord Almighty says, After the Glorious One has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. So God protected Israel like an eagle protects its young beneath its wings. This image is used throughout Scripture. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. God calls the foreign gods and idols detestable and worthless. Associated with these detestable idols are detestable practices like prostitution and child sacrifice. Peter reminds his readers of their old life. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. The NIV calls them false gods, which are not God. But other versions, like the New King James, says they sacrificed to demons and not to, not to God. Paul says, Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. And in Deuteronomy 32.21, God says, They made me jealous by what is no God, and angered me with their worthless idols, and I will make them envious of those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. And as I said, this was a prophecy about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God, Romans 10.19. God's wrath is described as a fire that reaches the realm of the dead. There is no place to escape his wrath. At the end, prefigured in the second fall of Jerusalem, people will wish they could escape and will call on the mountains to fall on them and hide them. They need not worry about vengeance. God would see to it and in a better and more thorough way than they could do it. And this verse is quoted in the New Testament. The writer to the Hebrews adds, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God promised atonement for the land and the people. When Jesus went to the cross, he bore the sins of his people. But he also wore a crown of thorns, representing the thorns that came in with the fall, when the earth was cursed along with man. This was so that the earth can also experience a redemption. The nations are called on to rejoice with his people, and this again pictures the inclusion of the Gentiles, and Paul quotes this verse in Romans 15. While Moses was greatly used by God and had been an example of humility and obedience, he was not perfect, and forty years of frustration boiled over. His failure magnifies the greatness of the prophet to come, Jesus. God brought water from the rock. Paul said that they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. 
So these two episodes of water from the rock all relate to the work of Christ on the cross. The first time Moses was to strike the rock, this represented his death when he was smitten by God. Afterwards he was not to be struck a second time, since his death was sufficient once for all. Moses' rebellion to the clear command of God would have made us miss this symbolic type, if not for God's seemingly harsh response. We had to see how seriously God took this violation in order to understand why Moses could not enter the Promised Land. Speaking to the rock signified prayer. How wrong it is for the Roman Catholics to re-sacrifice Christ every time they do the Mass. It is finished. All that's needed now is prayer to our rock. Neither Aaron, who represented the priesthood and works, and Moses, who represented the law, could enter the Promised Land. But Joshua is representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves his people and will bring them into their rest in the Promised Land. Just as the law could not inherit the promises, so Moses was unable to enter the Promised Land. The penalty God imposed on Moses may seem harsh, but his position of leadership increased his accountability. The same is true for all preachers and teachers. Leadership is a burden, if not now when we want to do our best, then at the judgment when we must give an account of it to God. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Deuteronomy chapter 33. May God bless the study of his word.